Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. This week, I'm back with Elliot, Caitlin, and Dr. Kripe Key, a crowd you might remember from our podcast a while back on mental health. As you can probably imagine, we get hit with the paranoid charge fairly frequently. But what is paranoia, and is it all bad? Today's discussion is about paranoia. In our field of of privacy, often paranoia is thrown around as a bad word. We're targeted with the term paranoia. Oh, you're just being paranoid. Don't worry. Government isn't out to get you. Oh, you're just being paranoid. Don't worry. Facebook isn't doing anything with all that data. And so we thought it would be helpful to actually speak to an expert on the issue of paranoia. I was wondering, David, if you could at least start us off with the question of like, what is paranoia from a expert perspective? Okay. Firstly, I mean, I'm, I'm not a clinical expert on paranoia. It's, I, I'm an enthusiastic amateur in this area. And I, and I think I, I have, I've studied it in an academic sense rather than a, a clinical sense. But that's one of the things that makes it interesting. Uh, we'll start with uh, paranoia is a kind of sense or feeling or belief that someone or something is out there trying to do you harm. And what makes it paranoia is that there is no basis in fact for it. So it is what you might think of as an, as an instinct. It is something that is alerting you to a potential. It's been part of human, it's a, it's a human trait, it's been part of our, our setup for as long as we can know, and it is something of evolutionary benefit. So if you are a hunter-gatherer community and some of your population are paranoid, uh, you will do better as a group than if some of your population aren't paranoid. There is a kind of fitness benefit to, or there has been historically, in evolutionary terms, a fitness benefit for having some people in your group with paranoia. And that's why we still have it. That's why humans have it, because it's genuinely of evolutionary benefit. Now, you know, what's important to say is that a lot of the things that we think of as, or sometimes get cast as negative, fulfill similar functions. So something like anxiety is again, of evolutionary benefit. Any, any community that has some people who are, have heightened anxiety will survive better than those that don't um, because paranoia, anxiety, and these kind of things alert you to the risk of threat. Now, whether there is evidence for that threat or not then becomes the responsibility of the whole community. And you know, a, a good, well-functioning community will take those paranoid instincts and test them, and test them sensibly. Uh, and you know, a, a, a good community of hunter-gatherers from you know, you know a, a million years ago that did that would definitely be better than one that simply had no paranoid people in it, um, assumed the world was a lovely fluffy place, carried on collecting their berries and doing their hunting and gathering without any kind of sense that there might be a threat out there. Now, what is important to bear in mind is that you need a balance. Uh, You needed a balance then 
so you need those that are hyper alert, those that are paranoid, those that are anxious, and you need those that are very good at investigating and understanding and, you know, turning these perceived threats into a kind of ranked order of threats. Because what you, you don't want to do as a, a community with limited resources is invest all of those resources in every possible perceived threat. And actually, most of this remains as true today as it was when we were hunter-gatherer communities. If, if I can just dig on that aspect, because um, a, a, a key word that in your definition was, was harm. And in the hunter-gatherer era, there's a certain level of validation that could occur from somebody's anxiety or somebody's paranoia, because ultimately a bad thing that they foresaw could occur, did occur, and it was visible. In and where you were getting in, in, in your, your point was trying to bring it to today. The challenge that we face as, as privacy advocates is that the harm is sometimes or often quite invisible. The interference itself is sometimes invisible and even identifying the fact that something is occurring, the moment of validation is really hard to identify. And so that's for us why moments like Edward Snowden or moments like Cambridge Analytica, where finally there was a validation. There was like, yes, this is happening. And, and people could more easily, tangibly with their imaginations at least say, well, if this was possible, we could see bad things that happen. But equally, as you say, preparing for all eventual outcomes is, is exhausting and also costly. We find ourselves in a pandemic where we could have prepared we could have been more cautious. We could have been more anxious about the circulation of, of viruses, but we decided to dismiss those who were concerned about that. And now we're dealing with this overflow of that problem. So how do you deal with the validation aspect? And is that where things become unhealthy, perhaps, when there is no way of validating and people fall deeper? Or what 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 is that cliff moment, if there is one? Can I take you back just a little bit before we get into the global, back to why even on a day-to-day -day basis, having yeah, anyone being slightly paranoid is, is, not, is not in itself a bad thing. And then I think, you know, it's that step into what can make it disabling and what can make it useful in, in broader society terms. So um, if you're going through your email and you see something that looks a bit suspicious, that's a good thing. That's paranoia. And, and paranoia is one of those things that stops you clicking or should stop you clicking on every link. And if we were a little bit more embracing of the concept of paranoia, this concept that there are people out there that you can't see that wants to do you harm, even in the absence of evidence of that, then that is a useful trait to get you to stop and think before you click on a link. And that is a, if you like, that is my simplest modern day example of why there is value in paranoia now. And, you know, if a community was not you know, hunter gatherers, if your community was your family or your extended family, and there's one or two people in there that are of the paranoid persuasion, like I am, then, for example, that might lead you to elevate your level of cybersecurity. Now, I don't know enough about cybersecurity. I know quite a lot because I am yeah, I am highly paranoid and therefore spend far more time than I probably should do um, reading and trying to understand this kind of thing. And I don't know whether it is it is makes good sense for everybody to run a VPN for everything they do. But that's how our household rolls. And that's because of my paranoia. 
So on a day-to-day -day basis, it has never been easier for people who wish you ill to get into your home in a non-physical way and do you or your reputation or your family or friends or people you care about your community harm. And that might be an individual who's in it for financial gain, like the classic fishing link, or it might be a state with a different ideology that doesn't like the way you choose your leaders, wants to, wants to interfere with your electoral processes, uh, or, or so on. Now, it is highly beneficial for us to be paranoid about these things. You know, if we were not paranoid, um, why would we spend money on GCHQ, or investigative journalists. Now, um, that is not to say that everything done by GCHQ or investigative journalists is a good thing, but my argument is that our society would be less good without them. I love that, because when we get the accusation of paranoia against us, particularly, say, from ministers, I try to put myself in their shoes and imagine how paranoid they must be how paranoid they must be that something bad is going to happen that's beyond their control. And that's why they, they, they have to love the intelligence agencies who give them a little bit of comfort and equally to work for an intelligence agency, you have to be somewhat paranoid in order to suspect everything around you until you find that one thing. That's fascinating. Like on a personal level or on an individual level, not really me, but I guess the way that it ends up being expressed can be quite interesting because take like Amazon ring cameras or the cameras people have started having in their own houses. And there've been all sorts of news stories about them being hacked and people using them to talk to people's kids and things, but they themselves are both something people aren't paranoid enough about, but also an expression of their own paranoia. It's that odd balancing act where the validation comes in, where it's like people have a sense of concern and they're worried and how they express that and how they validate that and what they're worried about becomes the problem or the next point. And there's a thing that we talk about at PI for various operational security and cybersecurity reasons, which is threat modeling. And part of, I think the problem, and I would say the problem with digital rights and kind of cybersecurity in general is threat modeling is quite hard and working out what your threat profile is and what you personally should be worried about or what you as an organization should be worried about or whatever, which is what threat modeling is, is, is incredibly difficult. So how you translate your concern and your worry and your sense of anxiety and paranoia into tangible action, the real worry, and I think a problem that our industry sometimes creates is we overwhelm people with like, here is everything you should be worried about. And all of these things, we're not going to give you a priority list. They're just all of them. And here are all of the things you can do. And rather than, soothing or addressing that sense of paranoia or anxiety and giving people like an actionable list we end up heightening one without really providing the next step because we don't give a prioritization list we treat like um here's how you or not all of us but like in general this happens we treat here's how you slightly improve your safety and security on instagram by or in general by having a password manager with use tool for everything ever and have six different VPNs and don't have a password manager, but also change your password every two minutes as like the same level of priority. Like dig the mics out of all of your all of your phones, which is not a piece of advice I don't think anyone's ever given unless they're working with 
Edward Snowden. So that's your Joe Biden, who had a um, whose Peloton had to have its uh, digital aspects removed. So it's just a bicycle now. I read that story, and it it was presented like ridiculously. Like Joe Biden has a Peloton bike. A Peloton bike is connected to the internet. It has a microphone and a camera in it. This may be a security risk. They have to be removed. And it was presented like, isn't this ridiculous? But actually, like in the context of Trump, who had a phone that was repeatedly reported as being very old and easy to hack. You know, you can see, given the context of the conversations that Joe Biden must be having basically all the time in probably like there's probably no area of the White House where absolutely you can guarantee everything that gets said is not sensitive. You can see why that feels like a reasonable piece of paranoia, because hacking a Peloton bike can't be that hard in in the realm of state actors and state hacking. Like that feels both paranoid and sensible. (laughs) I, I, I want to jump on that like on, on a more personal level because I feel like the, the discussion is gliding towards Turks so it's towards tech so I I feel like I need to do to say something and I'm wondering I have no clue about like where paranoia like what are the key factors that are usually triggering paranoia in human beings but I I imagine that the fact that we're surrounded by technology and just science in general that we don't understand like even if you're a top scientist in a field no day, there are like hundreds of things you don't understand and you can barely um, like approach the way it's working. I'm surrounded by, I'm a technologist, I'm surrounded by tech and yet every day I use things, I'm like, how is this working? Like, why does this magic magically lights up or emit sounds or whatever? And I'm wondering like, how big of a factor is the development of technology in the past years in this paranoia like like, are we seeing more paranoia because we're more and more surrounded by stuff we don't understand or we have no control over um i don't expect you to have the answer but i'm quite curious to see if there is a relationship here and if it's this kind of relationship and a development of technologies also makes people uh slide into the sort of harmful paranoia where you just are constantly worried about everything and every piece of technology you come in contact with I think there's some some really interesting stuff there. Firstly, putting the technology aside, we do know some things that definitely exacerbate uh, that move from paranoia being a, a perfectly sensible, useful human trait into something that becomes disabling. Uh, and uh, I will I'll send you the link for some studies. Um, but there's some really good work that has identified elevated risk of disabling paranoia, so something when it becomes a a clinical issue, among people who have experienced bullying, people who've been involved in uh, armed forces combat, and gang membership. So there are some kinds of behaviours or environmental factors that will definitely um, exacerbate that movement Uh, of paranoia from being a perfectly normal healthy trait which I would encourage all of us to to nurture and and, and manage and then it's tipping over into something that becomes disabling and again I, I don't think this is any different from anxiety you know we should be anxious you know if you're not anxious at the moment there is probably something wrong with you um and, and that's that isn't a clinical assessment but but you know anxiety is what um makes us stop when we approach a busy road and not just walk out in front of traffic anxiety at the moment is what makes us put on a mask and, and, and wash our hands more frequently than we probably were doing a year ago and one of the things that i really liked that, that caitlin said was threat modeling now i think rather than 
Caitlin being concerned about bombarding people with the outcomes of her threat modeling, which I can see is potentially problematic, more training in how people can do their own threat modeling would be much more useful. Because I think the, the, the answer to how, how worried should we be about our peloton would vary depending on whether we are president of the United States or someone who um, is, works for a mental health organization who's currently spending much more time at home. And a good threat modeling process would say, if you're president of the United States, then A, the risk that people might be interested in what you're saying while you're cycling is higher, and B, the harm done by them knowing it is higher than it would be for, for you or for me. And a good discussion about threat modeling would help you make those decisions about what kind of response you should make to your natural paranoia about either, you know, and it, it could be technology, it could be about your neighbours, it could be about the supplier of your media, whether that's, you know, whether that's good old fashioned newsprint or coming straight through from Twitter. The paranoia isn't the problem. I think the problem is making sure that we have the skills to take that feeling that someone is out to get us and someone is there to do us harm and to do what Caitlin calls threat modeling uh, so that we can take the sensible and proportionate steps that are appropriate for us. Now, for an organization like Privacy International, you have every right to be more paranoid than an organization like the Mental Health Foundation because it's, you know, information and privacy are your stock in trade. We would be more worried about the psychological impacts of either insufficient paranoia or disabling paranoia, because I think both would be a threat to your mental health. So I think some technology provides definitely additional issues, but the the approach to keeping your paranoia in healthy bounds is, is tied up in this lovely idea of, of threat modelling. I imagine it wouldn't be a surprise we get some emails where clearly the person that has sent them this is something they're struggling with. They're worried about the big, scary things rather than the persistent, constant local things like not phishing links, but some terrifying technology that just genuinely doesn't exist. And it, it you know, it's difficult to pinpoint sometimes what people should be worried about. So I think, yeah, threat modelling is is more useful than we give it credit for. And you don't you don't need to give it necessarily what some people might think of as a fancy title like threat modeling. It could just be problem solving. It could be as simple as saying, well, what's on your mind and what can we do about it? And even if the harm proves to be real, there are still decisions to be made about what's the appropriate level of resource to put into it. And that is something that, you know, that's a really important skill that everybody should be trained in. I mean, I spent some of my early years as a statistician and economist. So I I spent a lot of my time making numerical models of things. So I'm predisposed to loving anything that's a modeling process, because I think that's that's a really good way of, of testing our thinking. But threat modeling is a really useful skill. And I, I, I've done some really interesting things in my time. So I, I spent a little bit of time as an election monitor for the first Croatian elections out in, uh, based in Zagreb, part of uh, part of UN group. Uh, and it, this was absolutely fascinating. But we, we were embedded with UN and with, there were some journalists. And these journalists were what I would think of as absolutely fearless. Their kind of threat modeling was 
not like mine. So I, I, I am immensely scared of drunk people with guns. And Zagreb, just prior to the first Croatian elections, was full of them. And so my threat modelling was, I'm going to stay really well clear of, of these people. Uh, and the journalists were just going up, interviewing them, doing whatever. And then one evening, there was this stomach-churning scream that came from the journalist's bedroom. And this is when my threat modelling went out, and I just kind of ran in to see what was going on. It was a small spider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my threat modeling is drunk person with gun, really dangerous, small spider um, in corner room, really light duty stuff. Uh, well, you say so... that, I once threatened a spider with a crowbar, so I'm not I'm not the person to talk to here. <laughs> Where was your threat modeling then, Caitlin? <laughs> it seemed perfectly logical at the time. I thought, you know, this will this will fend the spider off. <laughs> I'm just kind of swinging. <laughs> I was quite tired. <laughs> <laughs> How can I break this to you gently, Caitlin? Um, <laughs> there are so many issues with that threat model. Um, <laughs> it requires a little bit of calibration in a number of respects. That actually leads nicely to my question. Which you say that paranoia is an element of any society that survives, but I'm curious, as it is with Caitlin and spiders, is everybody paranoid? Is, is paranoia a part of everybody's human condition? Is just triggered differently? Or is it there are a type, there's a type of personality that is paranoid? I would say that everybody is on a paranoia scale. Um, and so some people will be, you know, will be remarkably relaxed about threats. And some people will be hyper aware of uh, potential threats. And some people will be hyper aware of potential threats. There will be a, a bit of genetics, there will be a bit of social upbringing, there will be a bit of all sorts of bits and bobs that will make some people more or less likely to be paranoid. And they will probably behave in, you know, when you get to the kind of limit of that, of that continuum, whether it's very low or very high, you will probably cluster together with people who will reinforce that because that's part of our kind of human traits is that we, we kind of gather around people and actually, if there is a risk associated with technology and this, one of them is that there are a lot of algorithms that enhance this clumping together. So there are a lot of algorithms going on in social, I don't need to tell you this because you, you'll know it far better than I do, um, but there are lots of algorithms in, in social media and other online resources that clump people together and categorize people and, 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 and create these groups that people aren't even aware of being created into. And in, with things like paranoia, with things like anxiety, Actually, with it, with probably any of these traits like optimism or pessimism, where there are scales that people sit on, then if you spend more time with people who sit on the same place in that continuum or sit that distance from the, the kind of right balance point, then you're probably going to move further from that right balance point, whether that's being less and less paranoid when you should be more paranoid or being more and more paranoid when you should be less paranoid. So, again, one of the things that would make a good balanced response to this would be keep making sure that you have a diverse group of people so for people like you that means you need to spend more time with people who who are calling you paranoid um because it will be healthy for them and you providing you can do that in a healthy and respectful way and it's not an easy thing to do because if i you know I hold a lot of views quite strongly and if I have you know I have to really force myself to spend time with people or read things that I just 
strongly disagree with but it's good for you to do that and i think with with paranoia you should be going out there and increasing the paranoia of people who aren't paranoid enough but you should accept that kind of pushback in a balanced society we have organizations like you that are more paranoid than average and i would say rightly so because otherwise what would be the point of you but we you know it, it's also good that we have organizations that are, are much more comforting and, re and relaxed about it and what's important is not that um we all cluster around those that we feel comfortable with it's that we respect all these differences and draw some learning from them i got, I got a question following that like you rightly mentioned the fact that now we've filter bubbles and algorithms and communities like the internet is just this beautiful space that if you have uh, if you're worried about something or if you like something you're going to find people with exactly the same thought as you and um i'm just wondering like are there symptoms or are there signs that people should be aware that are kind of telling you that you're gliding towards uh, something more like a harmful paranoia, harmful form of paranoia. Uh, is there something we should be aware? Like you're saying, we're more on the paranoid side, uh, but some people, even like maybe some people listening to us might be even further. And like, what would be the thing they should watch for and they should be careful about um, to make sure it's not becoming harmful and dangerous for them? It's both simple and complicated, the answer to this. Is it having a, a disabling effect on you living the life you want to live. I mean, the other classic example is things like obsessions and compulsions. At what point does that become something clinical like obsessive compulsive disorder? We all have obsessions and compulsions. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a person on the planet that doesn't have it to have obsessions and compulsions to some extent. For most of us, it never causes us problems with our day-to-day -day life. And I would say that's how you would answer that question with paranoia. Is it starting to affect your ability to have the kind of life that you would want to live? So are you not going out? Are you not connecting, socially connecting with people that you enjoy socially connecting with? What makes this more complicated and pernicious compared to, say, anxiety, is the effect it would have on your ability to trust others. So one of the things that's really important in calibrating, is this starting to disable me, is that sometimes if you don't pick that up early enough, you lose the ability to make that rational judgment and you would rely on people you trust to support you through that. Now, if your paranoia is interfering with that trust, that then really is quite complicated and quite difficult. So it, it can be really pernicious, but I think the way you, you reduce that risk is by talking about it openly and early, by having those discussions, by not thinking of paranoia as a dirty word and not using it as a term of abuse, but actually saying it's a natural part of being a human being. It, it's been with us for as long as there have been human beings, uh, and it'll probably be with us for as long as there are human beings. And, and hopefully, if we keep enough paranoia, we'll stay being human beings for a long, 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 long time. I love where you're going with that, because generally across what we, we've been doing for the last 30 odd years, but particularly in the last year, we've had to always navigate this very delicate line around raising concern, investigating and uncovering wrongdoing and abuses, but not pushing people to say, you should be paranoid. We want to channel that paranoia into action. 
and going back to what Caitlin was talking about with threat modeling, we want to channel people into thinking constructively about what they could do individually. But we're also asking people, what can we do collectively? And the philosophical take I've always had was that if paranoia like anxiety is to some degree healthy and it's at a, at a systemic and societal level, there's also unhealthy levels. And so our request upon powers, whether it's corporate powers or governmental powers, is to be worthy of that trust, because you're the one who used the term trust, to, to, to be trustworthy. And so therefore, we won't become paranoid about all these speakers in our homes that are listening to us, because we can trust companies that build them, that they will apply security, they won't be listening. Similarly, our, our governments must abide by the rule of law, because, uh, and if they do, we will not become paranoid about them. I'm, I'm perhaps creating a myth, but I'm curious, what do you think would alleviate paranoia, not reduce, but alleviate, re reduce the strain of paranoia at a more systemic and societal level? I think the, the easiest first step would be to be more open about treating it as, as what it is, which is a, a natural human trait that you know is there because it is intrinsically beneficial, but can get out of hand and become disabling. And in, in evolutionary terms, it was very much because of the collective that it was important. So I think there are individual benefits, and we've talked about not clicking on that suspicious link, not opening that door to, to that suspicious person, uh, and so on. But the broader benefits are of managing paranoia well are communal benefits. And, and take, for example, the vaccine skepticism. Now, this is where I get countercultural because my instinct is to find that frustrating but if I'm going to be true to my paranoia as a useful thing then I shouldn't just be instantly annoyed by that and and actually it's not to our community benefit to be instantly annoyed about that it's to do the best we can to really explore what those concerns are and to some extent, they would be the kind of things that you and I might complain about in other circumstances. You know, the speed the scientific research has been done at, the, the fact that, that some countries have said it's okay and, and other countries still haven't said something is okay. Um, the fact that actually the, the evidence is really complicated. So rather than take a kind of knee-jerk divisive response to people who are vaccine skeptic, what we need to do is explore and express that in such a way that we don't push people one way or the other, so that they don't become vaccine zealots or vaccine deniers, that they become people who can make a sensible rational choice, and that we as a community can make a sensible rational choice. And that I think is much more likely to get us to a safe place in terms of both vaccine and virus in, in a reasonable timescale than turning it into a binary yes, no thing. But it's genuinely not easy and it, it's made more difficult because our media like binary. Um, our media don't always like the same side of the binary. Uh, and for, for any particular cause, you'll, you'll find our binary media split in one way or another as to which side of the binary. But there are times when things aren't a simple yes, no, uh, even if they have to be resolved into a yes, no, the, the path to get us there is a complicated one, a nuanced one. And with things like the paranoia around the vaccine, 
we genuinely have to tread carefully about that. We have to respect, I have to bite my lip and respect my otherwise enthusiasm for paranoia and say, well, well, why should it not be reasonable under these circumstances? And what's the threat modeling that we need to do that is open and accessible to what I would say probably a good two thirds of people who are instinctively vaccine skeptic, who can make a good rational choice about it, who aren't ideologically opposed, but who actually are concerned and rather than force them into that opposition binary, have a constructive, sensible dialogue which opens these concerns. And heaven knows, as a part of that, we might actually improve our vaccine. We might actually improve our infrastructure that delivers it. I mean, it's shocking at the moment, for example, that in the UK, there is a correlation between those at greatest risk of harm by coronavirus and those most likely to turn down vaccine, both by ethnicity and by economic advantage or disadvantage. And, and in order to combat this being yet another thing that increases inequalities, we really need to start to have a sensible conversation about that. Just to make this even more complicated, pharmaceutical companies don't have a great track record on being trustworthy. I mean, genuinely, uh, and, and, and from a, a mental health perspective, I would say they've done some extremely dubious things. So, you know, I'm definitely not here to flag wave for the pharmaceutical companies. And I, I would definitely advocate anything that increases openness and scrutiny around things like clinical trials, because we know from a, a kind of data perspective, clinical trials are not always as open and transparent as they should be into, as a form of evidence for making really important clinical decisions for even small populations, let alone for whole populations. So I, I think this is why I have to fight against some of my instincts and say, well, actually, I've got conflicting instincts because I, I'm not a great fan of the clinical trial as a as a simple answer to how we best decide what's best for people's mental health. And in terms of interventions for mental health and even interventions for, for quite a lot of clinical conditions, the, the randomized control trial is not necessarily the best tool for deciding if something works or not universally. Now, what randomized control trials are very good for, if they're done properly, is identifying the benefit of an active ingredient for a particular purpose. Now, for controlling a particular variant of a virus, that makes it a really good tool if it's done well. But for you know for testing whether it's a good public health intervention you need other tools as well so there is more to a vaccination program than getting the vaccine right uh, and that's the bit where we need to have the constructive engagement we need to harness the paranoia uh, and some of that is about government and technical competence some of that is about adherence and compliance and some of it is about you know irrational paranoia and in the UK we have a better chance of being able to do that than in the states uh, a because we're smaller uh, and b because we tend to be less binary in our approach the more we talk about it the more we discuss it and particularly the more we do that in diverse environments uh, in a respectful way, the more likely we are to be able to navigate our way around it. And that's the trick. That's the difficult thing. So it's you finding partners who wouldn't be your natural bedfellows in, in both directions, 
and, and bringing them together for a sensible discussion. And maybe what you use the criteria for, for people who you do support when you're dubious is, are they the kind of groups that want to be engaged with a more broad and diverse community, or are they pursuing a narrow ideological purpose? And, and I think if they're the former, then there's a benefit in working with people you might be uncomfortable working with. Um, because you will reach people uh, who wouldn't naturally think like you, who might benefit from thinking like you. If, however, you're being used as a partial tool to promote an ideology, uh, then I, I don't think that is a broader public benefit. I think that's reinforcing a particular partial view. And I think the same goes for, for earlier discussions we were having about mental health. You know, mental health is not a tool that should be used to pursue your ideology. It's a public good that needs to be treated as something that is, is there for all of our benefit. And that's a great way to round this up. Thanks for listening. Like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. Find out more from David at the Mental Health Foundation website in the description. And find more from PI on all the normal places on social media. The music is courtesy of Sepia and Glassboy, which is licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>